Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach Trip Lanier. Are you afraid you're going to have to make a radical shift in order to feel fulfilled? Have you ever felt tempted to walk away from your career so you could pursue a dream? And is it really too late to make a big change in your life? Mastery and 48 Laws of Power author Robert Greene is here to discuss how he wandered through dozens of jobs and being seen as a loser at the age of 37 to finally reading his name on the New York Times bestseller list. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Robert Greene. He's the best-selling author of The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, and Mastery, just to name a few. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Trip. My, my pleasure. So there's so much we could be talking about. You've got so much great content in the, in the books that you have here, mm-hmm. but I want to focus on the guy out there who is in a big transition, or maybe he's on the edge of making uh, a big decision or, or heading into this uncertainty. And typically when I have a conversation with him, he's looking for a linear, laid out path of what to do. He wants a plan. He may be looking outside of himself for direction about what he should do. He wants certainty. He feels a bit lost. He's full of doubt. He may even feel weak. And um, chances are he's not sharing this with anyone. He's isolating. So we'll discuss some of your books in a bit. But first, I want to explore your life and, and what was before you became a best-selling author. So you were a journalist for several years, and then you had a significant lunch with your editor. What did he tell you during that lunch? Well, basically, I I wanted to be a writer, and after university, I thought journalism was the right path to also make a living, and I'd been doing it for several years, and I had this lunch uh, with an editor um, after he had edited an article of mine, and um, you know, I remember the day very well, because it's sort of carved in my, in my memory system here. He, he was kind of drinking sort of heavily, and then he just sort of out of nowhere, laid a bomb on me and said, basically, that I wasn't a good writer and that I should give up on writing, uh, that my work was really undisciplined. I was all over the place. I didn't really know how to connect to readers. And it, it just was so out of nowhere. Um, and here, you know, I thought I was I thought I was a pretty good writer at the time. And um, 
and and it just really it really kind of made me think a lot. At first, I was really upset, and I wanted to punch him in the face, which probably would have been a good idea. <laughs> but um, then I sort of, like, I had this image in my mind that um, he was sort of like this rotten house, and that all the drinking and all of his bitterness, he was just sort of being eaten up inside, and I happened to be the easy target. But I, on the other level, I realized that maybe there's a small element of truth in what he's saying, that journalism isn't the right thing for me. I think if if it really were, um, he would have known, he would have smelled it because he did have a lot of experience. And I would have felt a lot angrier than I was because my reaction after a few weeks was, you know, I don't like journalism. It's not my cup of tea. And maybe this is sort of the catalyst for a major change in my life. Did you, were you considering walking away from writing altogether or were you very clear that it wasn't journalism? Now, that's the key point uh, in the story, um, is that I was not uh, thinking of giving up on writing. I knew I was a good writer, um, and I loved it, um, and I I was very committed. My reaction was, it's not journalism, so I have to explore what I could do, uh, other ways of writing. And so that initiated um, this sort of period of wandering in my life, uh, I had this romantic notion that a writer, kind of like a Hemingway type thing, just goes around the world and lives and has adventures, and based on 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 his life, he can then write some great things. And so I went and traveled all over Europe. I did every job you can imagine. I mean, from construction work to working in an office for a television company, to teaching English in Spain. I was in every country, every job. And I was writing. I was writing plays and novels and essays and all sorts of things. But it wasn't—it wasn't coming together. I wasn't. Uh, this also wasn't working out. Sort of like the journalism thing. And so um, I made a decision. I think maybe close to when I was turning thirty that I needed to come back to Los Angeles, where I was born and raised, and get into the film business because I have to make a living. I can't just be this expatriate poet, writer, Hemingway type. I need to make a living, but I want to still try writing. So I gave Hollywood a shot and um, worked there for several years. And although, you know, there were some great things, really interesting experiences, and I learned a lot, that also wasn't right. It, it, it First of all, I'm, I'm not, I don't fit into the Hollywood world that well, but also... Uh, I didn't like the fact that I could write something that I thought was good and I had no control. So everybody would come, eight different people would come in and change everything that I wrote. So I had this journey up until maybe the age of 35, 36, that at a certain point you could say, this kid is lost. He's a loser. My parents were even thinking that, you know, what's, yeah. what's come of our son, you know. That, did you so did you feel lost? Did you have that feeling or, or did you have a sense of, no, I'm on my path, this is my direction, I, I, I just got to do it? Or, or were you, did you have your own doubts? I had doubts. Of course, everybody has doubts. You know, it's, it's, it's natural and normal. And there'd be days where I'd feel like, you know, what am I doing here, et cetera. But I never gave up on the writing. I thought, I just haven't found my niche. I've, I've, I've got to find a way to make a living and then keep the writing going. I just 
refused to give up on it because I'd spent years practicing it in different forms. I had skills. Um, I just hadn't found the right niche for me. Okay. So I had doubts and it was painful, but I just refused to give up. Did you get into a place where you were comparing yourself to others and like, okay, well, I'm 30 now or I'm 35 now. I should be in this place. I should have this part of my life together. Did, did you have that pressure too? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then I also had my parents kind of breathing down my back and the idea that, you know, if I, if by the time I'm 40, I haven't done something, um, you know, it's probably too late for me. And so I felt some pressure, but I, I think pressure can be a good thing, can be a positive thing. So how so? What, how did, how did you turn it into a positive? Well, you know, the story, the end, the happy ending to the story was that, um, about at that kind of low point in my life, I, I was in Italy for a job and I met a man who packages books and he asked me one day if I had an idea for a book. And I just suddenly had a great, one of those light bulb moments where I think just hearing the word book, it just resonated with me. That's what I've been meant to, to do. That's That was really, why am I wasting time with journalism and Hollywood and television? I meant to write a book. And so... You know, it ended up of the idea that I improvised turned <clears throat> turn into the 48 Laws of Power. But I was so motivated, um, so desperate, so depressed and desperate that I, first of all, was prepared when he asked me for ideas. Um, you know, it just, it was the right moment for me. And I was so motivated to not have to return to all of the bad jobs I've had. I've had 50, 60, 70 different jobs in my life. Uh, I was so motivated not to be a slave to a paycheck. And um, I just put every last drop of blood I had in me into that book. Um, and that, I think, really made it successful. So feeling a little bit uh, a sense of urgency um, and need to do something and pressure um, can be a positive thing. And did you, absolutely, but did you did you find that, I mean, on one hand, like we're kind of waiting for this moment and then I'm going to have my big break and I'm going to have this idea, I've already got this vision, but you're saying you went into that conversation, you didn't even anticipate that you were going to pitch a book. Did you, I mean, did you really not have the idea going in? Did you, did you really, were you ever resisting the idea of being, of, of writing a book, being a writer your whole life? Well, you know, I tried, I was going to write novels and things, but the idea of writing like a piece of nonfiction was what had never occurred to me. Okay. And I had no connections. So having no connections makes the game very confusing. But here was a man who was very successful as a producer of books and, as a, you know, a perfect connection. And because we were in Italy together on a job that was very very political. The people we were working for were very political. And so naturally, the idea of something about power and Machiavelli came to my head at the moment that he asked me. But it's, my whole life was preparing for it because I've been around in all those different areas, particularly Hollywood, around a lot of really politic, political, manipulative people. I had seen so many weird and, and dastardly maneuvers and I've been reading a lot of history. So it was like a perfect confluence of this experience in Italy, everything I had seen before, and my desperation 
it was just the right moment. So yeah, I'm lucky uh, yeah. because if I hadn't met him, I probably wouldn't be talking to you to here today. Mm-hmm. I might have landed on my feet in some other way because I'm I'm am ambitious and I am driven. I might have found my way to something else. So, but luck certainly enters into the equation. But the thing I tell people is, it's how you're prepared for an opportunity that spells the difference. There are opportunities that cross everybody's path almost every day. You're just not seeing it that way, and you're not prepared. So uh, certainly luck enters into it, but your level of, uh, your attitude and your level of urgency is going to make play the difference between people who exploit an opportunity and those who just let it pass by. It's pretty easy to look in the rearview mirror and see things in this way, like that period of wandering was preparing you for that opportunity at that time. Um, but, you know, I went through six years of something very similar and it was miserable, yeah. and uh, I didn't like. I didn't like that uncertainty. I didn't enjoy it, but I see how it prepared me to do uh, so many of the, of the things after that. But did, did, looking back, did you see? Wow, I wasn't prepared for this. I could have jumped on that. Did you any play? Did you play that kind of woulda, shoulda, coulda, or did you realize, man, that was my shot and I got it? Yes, but you know the thing is, things. Some. I mean, it sounds mystical, and I really don't like sounding mystical, but things sometimes happen a little bit for a reason. So if he had come to me with an idea of asking me about a book 10 years earlier, <clears throat> I wouldn't have been ready and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it happen. Um, so certainly there were things happening in the past where maybe I could have actually written a great screenplay and then I would be making a lot of money and everything would have happened differently. Yeah. But it wasn't meant to happen that way. Um, and the the thing is, you're, it it really depends. So much depends on your attitude. So, um, if you're looking at your life and getting all upset and regretful and saying, "God, I've wasted this. I've done that," <clears throat> your eyes aren't open. You're not realizing that you're you're missing chances to learn from everything. So, I always had the attitude that even the worst experiences were adding up in my brain and helping me. As a writer, I had a terrible job at a detective agency before I got into Hollywood. It was just <laughs> one of the most depressing jobs you can imagine. But God, did I learn a lot about people and psychology. Wow. And I knew at some point later in my life, that awful job, would I would use for it. I would use it in some kind of material, in some kind of book. Uh-huh. And every job that you have, every bad thing or every moment, they're teaching you something about yourself or about other people. Uh, it's just how, how you orient yourself, whether you're learning and your eyes are open or you're getting down on yourself and beating yourself up. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I get this idea we can either be curious or we can be defensive or, or rigid. And, and, you know, I see a lot of guys, we can, we can think of our lives as a series of checkpoints or finish lines. There's these expectations. And so if we're not meeting those expectations, we get down on ourselves. Uh, you know, we expect that we're going to get educated in our 20s, so we don't really consider ourselves to be learning much after that. We climb into a career, and then, you know, that part of our life is locked in. We become stagnant and calcified and rigid, and, and I think we ultimately get more fearful as a result because we're playing not to lose instead of, right. okay, change is, is an aspect of life, and, and what else can I continue to learn and, and keep that open mind or to keep that attitude in, in, that, in that more positive state. I, I get the sense from your story that it's, 
never really too late to create the the life that you really want. Do you is that still is that true for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a living example of it. I kind of turned my life around maybe at the age of 37, 38. Uh, there is the question of how old can you be, um, which people have asked me a lot. Um, and I and I do consulting work with people. I think, you know, if you're in your 50s, there's still things, great things you can do. It starts to get diminishing your chances as you get older. It's better to, to have a, a moment of change in your 20s or early mid thirties, but it's not, it's not too late, but at each stage of your life, the game is different. That's what I tell people. I, I'm a very practical person. I don't like giving advice just for the sake of it. Yeah. So if you're, if you're 23, it's much different than if you're 35, what I would tell you. And the main thing to understand is if you're at that later stage in life, um, you know, let's say you're mid thirties and you're getting even into your forties, what you want to do is you want to reassess uh, where you went wrong, where you you know what it is that you really love in life, and we can get back into that later about why that's so important. Um, and just do some reassessing. But the thing you don't want to do is do radical changes. Radical changes don't work, and all they're going to make you do is get more depressed and beat up yourself up more. You want to make realistic micro changes in your life that are going to eventually lead you into something fantastic. And what I mean by that is if you've had these years of experience at a job that you hate, you've got to look at what you learn. You, you, you learn some skills. If you went into law and you hated law, which is a pretty common scenario, being a lawyer, even though you might have hated it, taught you some amazing things about how to argue, how to build a case, how to write, etc. So you want to use what you've got and slowly make a transition to something that suits you better. But to give up what you've been doing for a dream to become a rock star or whatever is just unrealistic and setting yourself up for failure. So depending on where you are in life, the game changes. But the main thing is what the, the, the key to, to, to success is skills, the skills that you have, the skills that you will develop, and how you will combine them into something very unique. And you might think you wasted your time, but you actually did acquire some kinds of skills you can now exploit for something else. I, I love that. I want to come back to what you said about, you know, when we, when, because a lot of guys that I talk to are like, man, I don't like what I'm doing. And therefore, in their mind, they come up with this theory that they've got to be doing something 180 degrees the other way. They don't realize yeah. that the path is probably more like 10 to 15 degrees different than where they are. Um, yeah. and they're going to integrate a lot of their experiences and integrate a lot of the skills they've got. They're just going to apply them in a different way. And so they That's look right. at this and like, oh my gosh, I have to make this huge leap. I'm going to lose everything. Everything is, 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 is up for grabs here and, and I could lose it all if I... And, and that's the only way that I'm going to feel fulfilled. That's the only way that I'm going to feel satisfied is if I make this huge leap. And what you're saying is actually quite contrary. It's really about integrating what we've already got and making some smaller shifts. Is that right? Yeah, and the smaller shifts will soon add up to something. So yeah. uh, let's let's take a five- or six-year plan. I do that with people I consult with. In, in six years, you'll go, you will go into something. It will add up to a radical change or, or a fairly radical. But to get there, it, it's never good to, to do that. So, for instance, there was a woman I know who had that scenario where she was a lawyer and hated it. She got into it because of her parents, et cetera, and she had always wanted to be a writer. And so what she did, this is she didn't consult me, she did this on her own. What she did was um, 
she quit law, but she went into uh, legal journalism. And it was kind of boring. It wasn't, she had greater aspirations, um, but she was very well suited for it. And she got to develop some real writing skills. And then she was able to segue into sort of a, a television, I'm sorry, a, a, a podcast on legal issues. Um, and from this base, she's now expanded to where she can write about other issues. And maybe she's going to, she's thinking of doing a, a courtroom novel. And in a couple of years, the change will be probably getting away from law. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of stuff that you want to do. In, in my book, Mastery, it's a little bit different story, but I talk about Freddie Roach. I don't know if you've heard of Freddie Roach. Uh, I interviewed him for my last book. He's probably one of the greatest boxing trainers that ever lived. And Freddie was a, forced into boxing at an early age from it by his father. And he liked it, but he, did, it wasn't, he didn't love it. And he became a professional fighter at the age of 18, and he fought for eight years, and he was pretty good but he took a lot of punches. And at the age of 26, he was forced to retire. And that was like the worst, uh, one of the worst things that could happen because his whole life, all he had ever done was boxing. Yeah. What the hell is he going to do now? Most people would think, well, I've got to do a radical change. And he went into telemarketing and thought about the job and sales. And he got more depressed and he started drinking heavily. And one day, he wandered back into the boxing ring where he used to train, and he just decided to start helping some of the young boxers there just for free. And he quickly realized that what he what what he really was meant to do in life was to train, to teach. Mm. He, w- he didn't have to take any more punches, but he could get out all of his competitive energies, and he had developed and accumulated so many skills in fighting itself, in boxing, that he knew he could identify and talk to a boxer on a different level. Anyway, that was a micro change, really. I mean, it's not a huge change. And it led to now where he, he, he's, he's training MMA people, et cetera, and he can just do whatever he wants. Those are the kind of examples that I love because they demonstrate what I'm talking about. Okay, this this is great, and these are we're talking things about you know how we can talk about it on the external level, how he shifted from being in the ring to being outside of the ring or being in the corner. But you talk a lot about the transformation. There's something that happens on the um, internally, and so can you describe that process about how we make those shifts, how we make that transformation internally? Can you can you tell me what you mean exactly by that? And I, I don't quite follow. Well, let's let's get let's get specific because you use the you said the phrase that to be that we sometimes become a stranger to ourselves, meaning that we yeah. ab- we abandon what we naturally naturally love and what we want to explore. Oh, I see, I see what you're getting at. And yeah. so, and, and you call it our primal inclinations. And so, for the guy yeah. out there who's become a stranger to himself, he's got this dismissive belief that you know his interests are just hobbies. That they're not going to be yep. the thing that actually pr- provide fulfillment. So, yeah, how are these primal inclinations, and how how does that relate to this internal transformation transformation that we make? Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, um, basically, what I talk about in in my book Mastery is that um, when you were very very young, read to seven years old, you were drawn to certain subjects and activities, and I call those primal inclinations. There. They're a marker of what of your kind of uniqueness, your DNA, your brain, your experience in life. Nobody else has them, and if you think about it long enough, it's a it's a remarkable thing. Yeah. And so, 
you, at a very early age, were drawn to something. Um, for me, it could have been words and, and just language itself. Other people, it's physical activity or competing or social things or music or whatever it is. And I liken it to a little voice in your head. It's not literally a voice, but it's saying, this is something that you love. This is, it's drawing you to this action or activity. And what I'm telling people is, as you get older, start losing, you stop hearing that voice. You listen to your parents mm. tell you, you know, you should go into medicine or law or business. You listen to your teachers who tell you you're good at this, you're not good at that, you need to learn this. You listen to friends who say it's cool to do this, it's cool not to do that. And by the time you're 19, 20 years old, you have no connection any longer to that inclination that naturally drew you to something that you're really, really good at Mm. or were meant to do. Mm -hmm. And so you enter a career based on what other people are telling you to do, most often because you think it's lucrative. Uh, That's sort of the main mistake people make. And and, And in your 20s, you can get by a little bit on that because you're young and and life is exciting, but you're not really emotionally, personally engaged in what you're studying or what you're learning. You're going to tune out. You're not going to, you're going to reach a point where you stop learning and you're going to be, you'll end up 35 years old and there'll be 50 other people who can do your job and they're younger than you and they're cheaper and they've got more energy. And so you're downsized, you're replaced. And then where are you? Right. So it's a really critical, critical issue. There, the great people in life who uh, really stand out don't really lose a sense of that voice. Um, it might still flicker in and out. You know, Tiger Woods, he's two years old, and he sees his father hitting golf balls in the garage, and he's just like, that's it. You know, yeah. I know what I've been meant to do, and he, he never lost it. But a lot of us, we lose it. And there's a process of getting back and, and reconnecting to those earlier desires and inclinations. It's a process of knowing really who you are. And it's hard, particularly for men, to go through that process. We're not used to introspecting and thinking about what we like and don't like. And I have a lot of tips, and I t- help people a lot in how to reconnect it to that. Um, but if you don't, if you if you ignore this advice because you think it's mystical or unrealistic or whatever, you're setting yourself up for a really, really bad fate because that point will come where you're 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 there's nothing unique about your skills. You're replaceable and it'll happen to you. And then it gets harder and harder later on in life to reconnect to what I'm talking about. Well, I'm just getting that it's also if you're not into it, if it's if there if that primal inclination is not there, that 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 just natural curiosity and where our where our attention wants to go and we want to learn and, and want to continue to explore, if, if that's not there, it's hard. Like it's exhausting to pursue that and to try and become better. Uh, well, and, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, then you know the neuro. I, I try and put a lot of science into the book, um, and and it's been demonstrated uh, various studies in neuroscience of learning, uh, that when you're not um, motivated, when you're not emotionally engaged in something, you learn at one-third, one-fifth the pace of someone who's, who's motivated. I, I give the example of, you know, you, you, you're forced to learn French in university, and you could study it for eight years, and you'll barely be able to speak. Um, but if you go to France, and you, you meet a French girl, and you want to 
producer or whatever, um, and you're there, you're so motivated to learn the language you'll learn in three months, but you could have learned in 10 years at the university. When your emotions are engaged, when you're curious, excited, you learn at a much faster rate um, in a shorter time frame. You pay deeper attention. Things are stamped into your long-term memory uh, better. Um, it just changes the whole game. So it's it's a, it's not just doing what you love. It's very practical. You're not going to be learning at, at the rate that you want unless unless you're emotionally involved, engaged in it. I think this is where I, you know, I keep coming back to this term emotional power because that is very powerful when we understand that we've got this drive because we want to get to point A, uh, point B. You know, there's this thing, and so that's why I want to learn this. That's why I want to dive in, and it's so much, so much more effective, so much more powerful when we when we have that drive instead of okay, this is just what I do. I wake up and then I go go kind of go through the motions here. Yeah, um, and uh, you know. Not everything is going to be fun. Um, I, 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 it's a misconception people might have listening to me that, oh, I just do what I love and it's all fun. The, the, there's a the famous 10,000-hour rule that some people might know about. I discuss it a lot in, in Mastery. Um, something happens to the human brain after 10,000 hours of studying and practicing something. I become much more creative, et cetera. Um, you're never going to get there to that point unless you feel excited. So you're going to have moments of tedium. I talk in the book um, about the basketball player, Bill Bradley from the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. who loved basketball, but he wasn't very gifted uh, for the sport. He just happened to be tall. And he went through these insane practice sessions that he created as a young man that just, you know, you just go, how could anybody endure that? You know, what it's dribbling for, you know, eight hours a day um, because he loved the game. So he could put up with the boredom, the tedium, the, the, the things that most of, that for most of us make us just tune out and then we hit a wall. If you love what you're doing, you can, you can endure that sort of tedious stuff and push past the wall. So that's sort of the key difference between people who succeed and don't. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that a lot, there's, there's this misconception out there that if the if things are difficult then we're doing something wrong and and so the challenge will be a part of this but it, it is this huge trap to think that there's some velvet rope area or out there where there is no more adversity there is no more challenge there is no more suck in this um and then if we're if we are bumping up against that that means that we're doing something wrong but it's just part of the path that we're going to be challenged and there's going to be some tough days Yes. Um, you know, as I said, I'm, I, I'm a realist. In my book, I, I interviewed contemporary masters, and then I went into the biographies of all the greatest ones. And I, I came up with patterns and a process that everybody goes through. And um, you can be Albert Einstein um, coming up with a second theory of relativity at the age of 26. And after that, you're still going through incredible, tedious hours of trying to figure out certain equations. It's still tough and boring and difficult. Um, but the key to life, the key to success in life, is how you define, I think, pleasure and pain. Um, and what I mean by that is following. We, we don't usually like to do things that are difficult or painful. Mm-hmm. We're naturally attracted to things that are fun and pleasurable. 
Um, I think everybody can kind of understand sure. that. But how do you define what is pleasurable? If what you think is pleasurable is immediate, in other words, going to a movie, having sex, which I don't mean to, you know, downplay sure. it all, but um, or watching porn or go or watch, playing video games, you, you need this kind of constant rush. Um, and the mastery, the long, the, the fulfilling yourself through your career, is a much different kind of pleasure in which you create something. You start a business that ends up being successful. You write that book. You win that game or, or, or on, on a sports level or competing level. That sense of satisfaction is so pleasurable, is so fulfilling. And you get all sorts of mini triumphs along the way that if you think in terms of, well, what really gives me pleasure involves some difficult moments, but in a year I accomplished this. That's how I want to redefine your your sense of values. Um, because if you're always looking, you can only see things in that short-term, three-month time span. You're never going to make the right changes in life. You're never going to hit upon that right career path. You have to be patient in this game. I, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know a lot of us are looking for that quick fix. If we're looking at making a transition, we, we don't want to make anything less than a lateral move. We want it to be quick. We want it to be painless. We're looking for more of that kind of immediate gratification. And it is yeah. like a, a pleasure. It is like that that hit. But when we think of things long-term, we're like, well, let's see where you want to be in five or 10 years. That's a different yeah. question. And we got to be much willing to take a, a longer kind of view at things. And, and you know, maybe like in terms of software, like, okay, that's version 5.0, but what's what, what would be version 1.0? And just start to think in terms of chunks and and find things that way. But I think it gets out of that, you know, what am I going to do to be comfortable now? What am I going to be do to have relief now instead of what am I creating that actually has me feel more freedom, love, passion, peace of mind, uh, fulfillment. It's a, it's a, I don't know. It just seems like much more of an adult conversation than just that quick yeah. fix, uh, kind of child in this. Well, the, the problem most people have now, and I keep repeating this that I'm, I'm, I'm a practical and realistic person here. The problem that most people have is they think too much about money. That might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but what I mean by that is, particularly in your 20s, um, you should think that money doesn't really matter. Uh, you, you, you're not worried about taking crappy jobs or working someplace that has to pay where you could be working at a large company and have it cushy. You want to learn. You want skills. Skills is the key to success in life. If you have real skills and you have accumulated three or four of them in your life, you're going to find a way to combine those skills into something unique like a business. I managed to combine all of my like journalism, television, Hollywood, detective agency jobs, crap jobs, learning about people into something unique. So the key isn't money. The money will come to you um, if eventually. Um, the key is, do you have a set of skills that you can now do something with that will set you apart from other people? So the problem most people have is they're so freaked out about the money. They want, they want the most of it in the, in, in the shortest time period. And if they're wanting a major career change, they're going to look, you know, where can I make a lot of money, etc. And you want to learn. You want to accumulate skills. If you're going to make that 
change at the age of 35. And let's say um, you've been following that lawyer path or whatever, and right. you want to get into something else. The one, the one thing you I tell people a lot is, all right, let's look at a, another skill that you can that you can acquire, uh, writing music. I don't know whatever it is. And in your spare time, um, you're going to instead of devoting yourself to to playing games or having you know immediate fun, you're going to spend your weekends or your evenings. Now with the internet, you have insane opportunities to do this. Um, you're going to spend your some of your time developing a new skill. You're going to keep your old crappy job because you can't afford to give it up. But you're going to spend time now developing some new skill that suits you, that's somehow connected to that inclination that we were talking about. Now, in two years, you can quit and you can start moving in the direction that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. But that's the key in life is what you've learned and how you can find your skills in a way that nobody else can do it. I love it. And, and, and you know, I hear the skills part, but I think there's a, there's a, an, a, you know, an assumption in there that these are skills that provide real value. Cause I could go find skills that don't really make, you know, move the, move the needle forward in someone else's life. But if I can, if I have a skill that's that, that I can translate into some real value, that's going to make a difference for other people. That's what you're really talking about. Well, um, the skills that I'm talking about are, are several. So uh, in your 20s, whatever, you might have had a job that you didn't like, but you learned things that are very valuable. Um, so a skill isn't just a manual thing. I'm not just talking about being able to dribble a basketball. Knowing how to work with people is a skill. Knowing how to judge people and see through their facades and see what they're really up to, that's a skill. Knowing how to work with other people, that's a skill. Knowing how to get, you know, if it's writing, knowing how to write something with a deadline in a professional way in mm-hmm. journalism, that's a skill. Um, so these are, these, these are all different aspects that you, you're accumulating. Um, and if you're at that point where we're talking about where you're wanting to transition, you're looking for a new skill that's suited to the change you're going to make, you know? So if you were in that position of the law, lawyer, you're going to start going taking class writing classes because that's the, that's the transition you want to make. You're not just going to go learn, you know, how to play chess. That has nothing to do with the change that you want in life. So you're learning something that's related to your transition. Yeah, and we've got to get into that mindset that it's we've still got to learn. We didn't just go through that learning phase sometime in our 20s we're always learning. Um I want to switch gears a little bit because you you've written so much about power, seduction, war, um, how did researching and writing about this stuff transform you? Well, it, uh, it definitely did. On the one, first of all, um, it gave me like a public presence. So the first book, The 48 Laws of Power, was based on uh, a lot of my own personal experiences in all the different jobs I've had, and then my sort of wide reading of history. But you could, at a certain point, you could say, well, you know, how is that connected to the real world? Mm -hmm. And after the publication of the book, I began to get besieged by people who wanted requests for advice, consulting, um, people in every, every imaginable profession. And so suddenly, the things that I had written about, I'm now able to see in real time, judge what, what I was accurate in what I wrote, but maybe needs a little bit of changing. And I just learned at a at a at a 
faster and faster rate about people and power and strategy by the experiences. So it became this self-fulfilling cycle where I wrote about it, people come to me, I learn more and more, I can now write about it in a higher level, now more people come to me. So it, it, it really, that's sort of like the major change that occurred for me. Got it. Got it. Did you ever worry about that a dickhead could use, you know, 48 laws of power to be a bigger dickhead in the world? Was that ever a, a concern? Well, that's a good question. And it, and, and it has happened. Um, I get a lot of, you know, the book came out 16 years ago. So yeah. I've, I've received since then thousands upon thousands of emails. And 90 to 95% are from readers who are a little bit like me. They're not dickheads. I don't consider myself a dickhead. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, they're people who were a little bit naive entering the work world, had illusions, didn't realize that they're manipulative, sharky types out there, and then they get screwed and they get upset. And the book really, really helped them understand how not to be a victim, how to play defense, how to occasionally even play offense. And the dickheads out there they don't need the 48 laws of power. They're, they're, they're wired for that. They, they, they know it. The book might in some way reinforce some ideas, and I, I guess I'd be sorry about that. But I really do think that the, the sharks out there have a, have a feel for the game. They're, they sort of lack empathy, and they're just, they're just born with a, a Machiavellian tendency. The book is really written the majority of people who don't have that in their DNA and really need help with it. Okay, got it. I, I was just wondering if, uh, like, Frank Underwood, is, is he a fan of yours? Is, he, is, is, is that show, a, uh, House of Cards, a tribute to that book? Well, um, the House of Cards was developed out of an English television show, um, but I do know the producers of it. I, I knew they were going to maybe work with me on a television version of one of my books. And I know the 48 Laws of Power has inspired them a lot. Um, so there's there's a lot of that going on. And, you know, uh, politic, it's kind of a fantasy figure. I mean, I love the heart House of Cards. There's really, I don't really know any political people who would quite rise to that level of, of sharkiness. Sure. Um, there are political people out there, and they've read my book. I know of some powerful politicians who've read it, but... I think by the time you're in your 40s or 50s and you're, you're, you're at that point, the book is kind of irrelevant. I do know that 50 Cent, I wrote a book with 50, the rapper 50 Cent, and a lot of rappers and um, hip-hop artists loved my book. Um, and 50 told me that um, he, you know, he grew up on the streets of Queens and saw all kinds of ugly stuff going on as a hustler, as a drug dealer. Right. And then he got into the music business and nothing prepared him the much worse stuff that happened there really? or political maneuvering. And so the 48 Laws of Power really helped him. Now, 50's no, no lamb, he's no yeah. naive person. But he, doesn't, he didn't understand how ugly uh, that world can be. So there are people out there like that. Uh, a lot of rappers were in that situation where they, they were tough people, but nothing could prepare them for business. Businesses can really cutthroat. Yeah. And can really throw you for a loop if you're not prepared. Well, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, it, it's, you know, whether it's the 48 Laws of Power or the Art of Seduction, it's stuff that, um, 
you know, it's about power. We don't really want to admit that we want it, <laughs> but, but we, well, there, it's got, it's, it's underneath there. It's, it's operating under, underneath the radar for, for a lot of us, maybe not so much for the sharks, but, uh, uh, you know, you, 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 it sounds like your work has been to expose this. This is how we do it. Yeah. And everybody wants power. Let's just, let's just put that aside. I mean, children want power. <clears throat> we, it's part of who we are. And I try and say power, we're not talking about political power. I'm talking about personal power, where you're able to feel like you can control and influence your life to some extent. You can control yourself and your reactions, and you have some degree of influence over your boss, your colleague, your spouse, whomever. Feeling like you have no control, no power over the world, over people, is the most miserable sensation you can have. Yeah. So uh, let's 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 redefine it and say that it's something that every everybody wants. Yeah, there's there's a lot of daylight between being a victim and then being a manipulative shark. You know, someone that's domineering over others, uh, and it's about really stepping into our own place. Yeah, and um, you know the the books are, are are meant to make you think about yourself and and your attitude. What I'm really trying to do is change your mindset. And what the problem that most of us have in the work world is we take everything too personally. <clears throat> we get upset and emotional, um, and it, things stay in our system for weeks and months, and we become fearful, etc. And I'm trying to change you from the inside out. I want you to think of it like chess. If you're playing chess, somebody does something, a really great maneuver that puts you in checkmate, it's kind of a nasty maneuver. You don't get angry and say, fuck you, and try and hit them. You say, well, that was well done. And that's how it is in life. People will maneuver you. They'll do things to you. It's just a maneuver. It's not even actually anything personal. You want some distance. and You want to watch people and see how they're playing and, and not get emotionally caught up in all of the battles. That's what all of my books are about. I mean, even seduction to a degree, but that's a little, that's a little different case. So I'm trying to change not just what you how you act but your your whole mentality your whole attitude. Yeah, I guess we can stick our head in the sand but in reality this 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 dynamic is out there to a degree and um and and you're bringing it to light. Yeah, I mean, the the moment you put three people together, you've got politics. You've got <laughs> egos. Everybody has an ego. I have an ego. People listening out there have an ego. Um it's inevitable. And so the games that people are playing may not be overt and nasty on the surface, but there's something going on. And, and you can take any office situation, which is more than 10 people, you'll inevitably find a shark in the pool. There'll be one of them in there. Somebody who's passive-aggressive, manipulative, power-hungry, has less functions than you, and they're there, and you need to be, you need to be aware of it. I, I, you're not, I don't want to make people paranoid. It's not about everybody's, everybody's out to get you because paranoia is, is a form of being emotional and that causes other problems. I just want you to be prudent and cautious and realistic. That's all. I'm glad you added the caveat on there. Okay. Mastery, yeah, yeah. mastery is the most recent one out there. It's what we talked about most today. Uh, 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction. You got the book with 50 Cent. Uh, what was the other one? 33, what was it? The 33 Strategies of War. That's sort of my my version of Sun Tzu, uh, ultimate book on strategy. Okay. And all these are available on Amazon, and they're all at the bookstores. 
Um, yep. And then uh, go check out his blog, uh, Power Seduction and War. Dot com. Uh, Robert Green, thanks for talking today. Thanks for you know sharing so much about your own personal experience. Um, I, I got a lot out of it, and uh, and it, it was just like it was just validating. Like th- this, it's so easy to look at the external and see, oh wow, he's this famous best-selling author, but we don't see that kind of wandering period, and, and a lot yeah. of us are, are avoiding that. Yeah, it's a it's a positive message. Even somebody that. His parents thought he was a loser at the age of 37. You know, he was able to turn his life around. So, yeah, it's a good lesson for for everyone, I hope. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.